Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. My name is Colin Hunter. Delighted to be joined by Dan Pontefract today. Dan Pontefract is an author, author of books like Flat Army, The Purpose Effect. And he's going to explore with us today some of the concepts behind the book, talking about what we're facing, what we have been facing in the pandemic. Uh, that's part about agency for leaders, part about connectivity and connection, but also as a man who takes July, August to reconnect with his family, talking about where leaders need to start to think about how they get the balance right in connection with the family, as well as with work and what they're trying to do. Dan's background left the UK at two month old, um, tells a lovely story about the fact that Canada was free to go to, Australia was 10 pounds, so decided to go to Canada and has spent the rest of his career uh, out there. And again, the career that he talks about today is working up from choices of a decision on career through to becoming a chief learning officer and then starting his own business where it's around writing, thought leadership and coaching. So Dan will take us through that. You'll love the conversation. Great man, very charismatic. And I look forward to hearing your feedback. Enjoy, Dan. Delighted to be joined by another Canadian, Dan Pontefract. Um, there's something about Canadians, been Rush being my favorite bands ever, um, but also just every Canadian I meet I love. So I'm looking forward to chatting today to Dan. Dan is an author, mentor, um, and speaker, TEDx speaker. So that's uh, what you do in your background. Dan, lovely to have you on the show today. Colin, thanks very much. Uh, Canadians stick together, but we do say sorry a lot. So if you hear me say sorry for whatever I say today, that's why it's in the DNA. It's very appropriate with Bimo wrong because I say sorry a lot. I'm trying not to. I'm saying to say, well, there's another thing of, you know, I've been wrong. Yeah, great. <laughs> but uh, let's celebrate. Dan, for those who don't know you, it'd be useful. Just can you tell us a bit about yourself and, you know, your background? Yeah, uh, delighted to. Again, thanks for having me. Uh, so much fun. Uh, love your work and uh, past episodes. So uh, keep doing what you're doing. You're, you're helping and and doing a good thing, a good cause. Um, for those that know Latin, I suppose, could start there. Uh, why not? Um, and my last name uh, in Latin is Broken Bridge. So Ponte is bridge and fract is a fracture. So I often kid around, uh, particularly to my three teenage uh, children, that I'm not trying to break the bridges. I'm actually being, uh, being the antithesis of my last name and building bridges. So that's where we start. Um, I am uh, originally an Englishman, but my parents wanted to emigrate to Canada. And the reason they emigrated to Canada was because it was free. It was 10 pounds to Australia. And, uh, and I think it was 20 pounds to Bermuda. Uh, and Canada was free. So being the frugal Brits, they were uh, up in Blackburn. They found their way outside of Toronto. And uh, I'm really a Canadian because I came over when I was about two months old. So that's kind of uh, how I got to Canada and been here for 50 years, uh, turned 50 last month. But uh, basically, I think there's, you know, three, three Dans. So the, the growing up Dan, um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I just happened to be captain of soccer teams and presidents of student councils. Like, I just always seemed to love um, leading things, you know, if it was a project, a team the council, what have you. Uh, but uh, because perhaps I had some uh, British in me, I, 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 
I, I was a much better soccer player than most Canadians. And so I ended up as a youth playing, you know, on the, uh, like the provincial teams, uh, training with the national teams. Nice. Can I just translate for the British audience? It's football. Yeah. Is that just, I'll put it in. So soccer, football, just in cases, any British listeners are wondering, I have to do it the other way when we're talking, uh, football and we have to translate it to the American audience. So I just want to put that in there. Yeah. Sorry. Fair, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. So I'll, uh, I'll, 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 I'll use them interchangeably. So anyway, um, I'm playing around and uh, I got hurt uh, when I was 17. And I um, two things happened was I, um, I was cut from a national team once and the, there were British uh, managers for the squad. And when they cut the squad, they put us into a, like a, a gymnasium room kind of thing, like an auditorium. And they brought all 25 lads into the room and they came up on the stage and they had the microphone. They called out the team of 18 and then the seven of us that were left, obviously, I didn't get uh, chosen. Uh, you know, the the manager, who I think was from Liverpool, uh, said, well, better luck next time, lads, and walked off. And so there I was. I think I was 16. <laughs> 16, just thinking to myself, how do you treat human beings like this? So that formed my I don't want to be like that man uh, theory. Uh, but then I also had an injury, and I had to um, – you know, be in a physio for about six to seven months after a six month surgery and cast and so on. So I wanted to like, oh, so maybe I I, do, I really like people. I don't want to be like that manager. And maybe I should go be a doctor. And so I had relatively good marks, I would say. And so off I go uh, to McGill University thinking I was going to be a doctor. And Turns out that I don't like the sight of blood, <laughs> Colin. So that's not cool. But also, I had this sort of epiphany in the year going into my first year of uni. And I was like, you know what? Why would I want to? I mean, I, I have the utmost respect for anyone in the AHS, any doctor, anyone that's in healthcare anywhere on the planet. But um, why would I want to be <laughs> trying to help someone get back to at least 100%? Why don't I, why don't I go into something that will allow me to be helping people get past their, you know, uh, current level. And so uh, I walked into a guidance counselor office and I said, um, I don't think I want to be a doctor. Uh, perhaps, uh, you have anything else, you know, is literally going through the Rolodex of what do they have there at McGill university, uh, in Montreal. And she's like, well, you should be a doctor. Your marks are so good. I was like, no, I'm not going to be, let's clear Let's be clear here. She says, Oh, okay. Um, well, you're, again, kind of smart. So engineering, let's put you in engineering. I'm like, God, no, my dad's an engineer. That's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's a common theme on dads there as well. <laughs> so we, we eventually get to education. And this particular program, McGill had a Bachelor's of Arts and a Bachelor of Education together. It was like a concurrent degree. She says, oh, you can't be a teacher. That's beneath you. And I'm like, Okay, so I'm going to be a teacher just to prove you wrong, essentially. So so those formative years of not wanting to be that manager from Liverpool who did a drastic thing to me in my formative years, to the injury, to learning to help people, to not want to be a doctor, to then saying, oh, I'm going to be an educator, that's like stage one, I would say. And so that, that got me to uh, eventually, I did teach uh, Canadian high school for two years. Then I really realized that's not for me, so I went into higher education to teach uh, adults actually in career changing programs. So I did that for about six or seven years. And, and then I joined the high tech world as a chief learning officer. So I'm continuing the education thread. And that really started 
uh, the process for me, and this is phase two, I would say, right, of learning how to help adults become better versions of themselves, right? So when you're a chief learning officer, you're, yes, you're doing education programs, but there's, it's a lot of culture, engagement, you know, performance work, recognition and learning, of course, um, which then turned to another role at a telecoms company in Canada called TELUS. And, and so that whole, like, basically, it was about a 15, 20-year period of higher ed uh, CLO roles in the corporate world. And then, you know, I was about 47, and I was like, wait a second, um, maybe there are other organizations that um, I want to learn from and I could work with as opposed to just one and a dedicated one. And I had been writing some books and doing some talks and I was sort of, I hate the word Colin, but I suppose there was a bit of a brand building, but you know, other than my family. And uh, so I decided to go on my own and launched uh, the eponymous Pontifrac group uh, kind of in 2016. And then went on my official own in 2018, leaving TELUS as its chief envisioner. And for the last three years, uh, having a whale of a time uh, in this kind of third iteration, I suppose, right, of uh, of Dan. And I love that. I just wanted to dig into a couple of things because there's, there's commonalities coming through that for me. One is it's almost that you had an experience at the time about leadership which challenged you and said, look, this isn't, this isn't how we should be treating people. And I, I do remember from my days of Procter & Gamble, that's exactly what I saw. I almost had what I described as the cockroach, the people who almost – you know, a nuclear bomb could go off and they still survive. So they do something majorly wrong. They treat people in a bad way and they'd survive. And the good people would go. And that's one of the key things. So I love that theme. Um, I don't know if it's something to do with the Lancashire-Liverpool piece as well. There's a bit of a you know rivalry going on there. So it could have yes. just been that. It could have been. But let's not let the truth get in the way of a good story. Yeah, right. <laughs> Scousers. Scousers, yeah. Go on. And my mom is a, is a woolly back, so she's close to Scousers. Oh, so there there you go. Yeah, so, yeah. But, but what I love is the move to the education. And I, I love almost that there's a commonality in terms of the when you're challenged that you shouldn't be doing it, you're too good to be a teacher. And I, I do think that the quality of teaching is, is so important, particularly in leadership. So I love that. So if you, if you were to say and go back to those days, what was wrong with the leadership? And, and what are the changes that you've seen, particularly recently, that have given you hope that we're heading in the right direction? Yeah, yeah I mean, we've only, I mean, this is, we're going to record for six hours, so we might be able to get through this, right? Yeah. <laughs> Or maybe Absolutely. maybe you'll invite me back and we'll uh, extrapolate on series the, the Pontefract yeah. series. Yeah, the, the call do you band. also know that you're named after a cake? Yeah, just oh, of course. I I have, that. Right over there, I've got uh, a bag of licorice all the time. I mean, I'm effectively royalty when I go to York, Colin. Uh, there's York. a red carpet. Yeah. There's a dilapidated castle called Pontefract Castle. Imagine that. And there's there licorice. Is. I am like I'm black medallion licorice boy. That's what I am. <laughs> Absolutely. And you've got a chip on each shoulder, which is the other sign of being Yorkshire. So, you know, you've got to have the balance in there. So it's it's good. I love it. Anyway, sorry, we digress. Uh, So, I mean, there's there's other and different and varying ways in which to say, like, what's the problem with leadership back then? Because many of those same traits are still evident today. Um, And I think, you know, often it's coming back to no matter what era, 70s, 80s, 90s, or now, it comes back to three key things. Um, one is um, 
that lack of relatability, empathy, um, human humanity or humaneness, sometimes I call it like that. Just the, the thing that leaders think they ought to be is the exact opposite of what they ought to be. And and that is, you know, they, they show up at work, virtual or otherwise, uh, with a Teflon suit on. And they pretend to be this, like, person they're not. Now, there are some meanies out there, of course, and that, you know, that's not the purpose. But there's just this, like, contradiction. It's that, oh, I'm a leader, now I better be a jerk. Or now, you know, I better not be myself. And this is not a male-female thing. This is, you know, all of the above. So that's that's number one. I just, I don't understand why people don't want to bring their own selves and full selves to work. You know, as if we don't have issues with our kids at home, as if... Um, you know, uh, you know, in my case, I'm not very handy. And, and, you know, sometimes I try to be handy and I make mistakes at home. I'm happy to share that I'm not handy and I make mistakes at home. Like, why, why not? Anyway, that whole ridiculousness. So that that continues, right? It doesn't matter, again, it's 1975 or, or 2021. So there's that. Number two is power. And, and so this kind of greed, not just money greed, but greed of power. So you know, entitlement, um, team size, budget, uh, information, collateral data, intellect, like not willing to share and, and collaborate with others. So power can be dissected in so many different ways, but that is rampant, systemic and weird. So I don't I don't really get it. So that would be number uh, two. And then number three, uh, which I believe probably has taken on more of an aura over the past 10 years or so, and we might be able to thank uh, Jack and Mark Zuckerberg and potentially even uh, the Microsofts and SAPs and so on of this world, but it's it's technology, ironically. And so this um, distractedness, this busyness, uh, this... Um, malevolent um, sucking sound of of time and how we are inappropriate with our use of time, particularly when as leaders we ought to be guides on the side, coaches and listeners for our team, there for them, you know, present for them. Uh, that has I've seen sort of an exacerbated level of inanity as a leader. So. So if anything, I would say not one's true self at work, uh, power and its varying degrees of cutting it. And then, of course, this sort of lack of presence, I'll call it. And it, I, I want to combine this because I was listening to one of your, your talks and I love this. The, I've called it the Mona Lisa Rush. Yeah, that you talked about this desire to go because I've done that. I mean, it, it, to be fair, I went through the first few um, sections of the Louvre and uh, went straight to Mona Lisa and said, "Well, it's pretty small, isn't it?" And missed everything. So I was a, in that way, I was living and breathing. But it is a it is a sign of the leadership now, which is I go on a course or I do this and I've led, which is nothing to do for me with leadership. It's more related to the empathy and and connection piece. Yeah, I had I had to give signals. This year, year 2021, as we record this, signals as of April the 1st to clients that I would be literally off the grid circa July 30th until September 7th. And the signals I had to give people for those, um, you know, four months, April 1st through to the end of July, was I will not be around. 
And, you know, some of the clients that I was working with are like, <laughs> what do you mean you won't be around? <laughs> I said, no, I, I am not going to be present for you. I'm going to be present for my family because my our 18-year-old is going off to uni and I want to spend some time with her, a uh, very focused, dedicated time. And I'm going to travel from the West Coast of Canada in Victoria all the way to the East Coast to Halifax. And I'm going to spend sort of 10 days with her just hanging and, you know, traveling and setting things up for her new university career. And people are like, but you'll be available, right? No, I will not. What don't you understand? So I come from a place of obvious privilege. I'm able to take five weeks off and I plan financially accordingly. Like I'm not an idiot, but just the, the my example here, Colin, was that back to that number three, staying present. I, I do believe that that's a lost art, but the, the chagrin and the um, almost the almost the close to being apoplectic faces I was seeing on the Zoom and Teams calls when I was explaining and again giving the signal out that says it all to me that that they thought I was crazy whereas I think that they're crazy not investing time uh, in this case for me and my family but that goes back to the calendar like if I look at when I start doing work with organizations I ask to look at people's calendars. Like just like the back to 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 back every day, Monday to Friday, every week. You know, I don't ever say this that often, I suppose, but maybe France got it right. And, you know, in 2014, when they started, you know, a process that then became law, right, to to disallow um, and support workers to, to not be, you know, um, uh, emailed and asked to respond uh, overnight or on weekends. Anyway, there's a lot to dissect there, but I love that. But I, I, I do love that because if if you take your three points, the technology, the connectivity, but actually you talk about it in one of your your books and talks around collaboration and the and being able to collaborate and using the technology and other things in there. So it is this balance between when you're on, it's about how you collaborate and how you work, and particularly over this last eighteen months to two years, we've had to find new ways of connecting. Um, and sharing and I, I you know they, you your time with your daughter is amazing but for some of the leaders listening in and going well I, I had you know I had to learn the way to connect it with technology so it is that balance uh, in there isn't it uh, around that oh I mean Colin let's be clear the pandemic has shown real serious fissures in the leadership light but the flip side, I mean, I'm not, I'm not uh, apocalyptic. Uh, there has been some really great empathy examples. Some people have looked in the mirror and, you know, this new word that I'm working on, Colin, is called agency. Like, I believe that there has been a heck of a lot of leaders and certainly individual contributors have looked in the Zoom mirror and said, what am I doing? <laughs> this is, this is, this is my life. So I'm, I'm very supportive of, the existential crisis that has uh, manifested as a result of the pandemic and people looking in the mirror and saying, is this enough? Is this me? And maybe, you know, we'll see to, to the to sadness of almost losing 5 million people through a pandemic, but maybe what we'll see in the shadow of that death is light. And that is people finding their true selves through agency and a, a sense of worth and, you know, free will. Mm. I love it. I also was at my daughter's going into the last part of her schooling and the 
the head teacher and the teachers are all talking about agency and, and working in there. So it, it's it's getting a common language around that, which is great. And they're talking about how we might create agency uh, in that sixth form. But it, it, for me, it's, it's, it's classically what you say is it's a choice. It's a system. And the system needs to be fed either by time connecting with your daughter. It's a system that needs to be fed by connecting with your team and people, but also allowing them time to connect with whatever's important to them. So there's a new world, there's new opportunities. And, and some of the virtual world has allowed me to connect more with my daughters over this last two years, despite the, the sadness in there. So just talking about the power, like, you know, the, I loved in Leadership is Language, Marquette, talking about the um, almost the authority gradient and how the diminishing of the authority gradient needs to be to get connection. And you talk about flat army, which I assume from reading the brief of it, that it's it's about how you get more connection and how you reduce the amount of authority and power you have. What's, what's your work and thoughts in there at the moment that you'd like to share? Yeah, I, you know, I'm going to uh, dissect flat army just for a second because it, it, it answer, helps to answer the question. So I, I began writing the book in the beginning of 2012 uh, it ended up publishing uh, April of 2013, and uh, so it was a quick write because uh, it was it was all there. It was at the it was at the forefront. It was it was on my fingertips. It was the tip of my tongue. It was what I had been experiencing up until that point uh, as a whatever I was 41, 42 year old, something like that, and um, and it was it was from the shenanigans of the corporate world, basically, not just the organizations I was working for and in, but, you know, the suppliers, the partners, the other folks that I've been working and having to work with. So, so where I'm getting at is I sat at a restaurant in Soho in London um, with my father and my father's moved back to Canada or Canada, back to the UK uh, moons ago, I think after 9-11 actually. And, um, and so we're sitting there having um, dinner and we started messing around with the title of the book. And somehow, you know, I got onto this notion about, well, the word army. And so that militaristic tone, sometimes people have to look at the etymology of a word and say, whoa, didn't know that. Um, didn't know where that came from. How did it morph into something else? So I actually played a trick on people or even myself, I suppose, because army actually comes back, uh, the etymology stems from the word armada. And armada is a flotilla. And a flotilla, for those that don't know that particular word, right, is a bunch of boats sailing together to get from point A to point B. But when you have an armada, uh, you have like lots of captains, but lots of crews. And so there's a, there's a group like, you know, sailing together to get to point B. But then you still have the team and the leader and sort of the command, if you will, of what has to go right on that ship in order not to sink, not to hit an iceberg, whatever, right? So my point of putting the word flat <laughs> in front of army was that, well, what can we do to not only inculcate an armada, a flotilla, but to have sort of a flatter, genuine, collaborative way in which to do so? all the while knowing that you still need a hierarchy in organizations. Like I am not the, the flat org guy. Like I see people writing about it and trying to get that into orgs. Colin, it's futile. I don't understand. What, anyway, this, that's not the argument. The argument is we can, however, act behaviorally 
in a more flat way in our organizations, knowing that there are going to be units, departments, and teams that each have their own kind of ecosystem in which to get the work done. But if we want to not crash into one another and we want to, whether it's turbulent waters, winds, what have you, we're going to have to work together and signal to each other uh, in order to make the destination safely. So that unpacks that for you. <laughs> no, it's great because it, it's somebody once said, so where does the word leadership come from? And I was just in my basic stupid mode going, well, lead ship. Um, and they said, well, is that really where it comes from? And I'm sorry, I don't know, but it makes sense really because when you talk about Admiral Amada, you know, when you had that, uh, the Admiral at the front, the Admiral could only tell with a sense of direction to the rest of the flotilla behind them what needed to be done. And it was up to them in the midst of battle and everything else to to find their own routes. And no plan survives first contact with the enemy, as, as a famous tactician once said. So so I love that. And, and there's a sense of team of teams as well, isn't there, is that you've got to understand what your next team is doing and your interacting teams are doing. So I love that in terms of the concept. There's a, there's a Canadian term. I'll bring in some Canadiana here. Uh, you know the word your, Y-O-U-R. Well, in Canada, sometimes people will shorten it to your, Y-E-R. And so sometimes I think leadership is lead your ship. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'd got to be. And I think this is because I have an analogy here, which is, you know, a lot of leaders don't sail their ship out of the harbor. So they, they just ah, you know, play like with the that. sails and they, you know, they polish the decks and all the teams are going, yay, as long as we stay safe, we'll get to the end of the year and get our bonus. But be more wrong principle is how do you sail the ship out of the harbor? So I'm, I'm fascinated by your thoughts on empathy, which you said was point one, and this ability for people to fail um, on the leader side, but also on the individual side and how you create it. Because you you have the purpose effect, you have lead, care, and win. And in there is that concept of how do you get people to, to stretch themselves as well. Yeah, You know, I, I, I don't know how people feel um, trusted to try something new if they're getting their head cut off or they're being, uh, you know, ripped a new one, if you will, in front of people, privately, etc. Like if you are in an organization and you're fearful uh, of being whacked, i.e. the uh, Sopranos term for being fired, I suppose, in an organization. Love that series. Yeah. What, what, where is your creativity going to come from? Where is your willingness to try something new? Where is your, uh, as I say, embrace change quotient? Well, it's, it's going to be diminished if not nominally low so again it comes back to if you're empathic uh i.e you can sort of get into the heads of what people are thinking you can get into the hearts of what they're feeling and then through compassion or sometimes what's known as sympathetic empathy taking your hands right and saying well here's here's how we can do something about this you're actually feeling and thinking about where the employee is to allow them to succeed. And, and again, that's creating that culture of creativity, of openness, transparency. You know, um, sure, the book may stop with me, I'm the boss, but that doesn't mean I have to be a jerk and bully about it. So, the, the, the two, like, I guess, you know, be honest, Colin, like Flat Army was a, a cultural organizational book. Like, what are the, 
the patterns, the uh, business process flows, if you will, in order for an organization to be collaborative and open and da da da. Lead care win are the actual, literally individual behaviors that we as people, as leaders, ought to be employing to make a flat army come to fruition. Um, and so I call it lead care win, um, most because I was toying around with calling it um, uh, lead scare win. And, you know, maybe that's the, the follow-up book. So. <laughs> so I took the S off of care and I call it lead care win. No, but it's a reverse order. Again, I like, I don't know, my book titles, somehow I like to play around with them sometimes. And so if you want to win the hearts and minds of your people, you will care about your leadership. So again, for me, it's like a Fibonacci code. I've kind of somehow reversed it or cracked it and done it in a jumbled way to to have this hidden meaning. And, and, and that's basically it. So if you know the names of your employees' kids, if you say, what a great haircut, uh, if you kind of create an, an environment where you're self-deprecating, if you um, push people to say, is, is that... Is that all you got? I think you could learn something more from this. Like, here's a course or, hey, would you like to take this meeting? You did a great job in front of uh, X yesterday. But I think, you know, now we're going up to the VP. You run this, you know, chances to uh, learn and develop. Like all of this, like honestly, Colin, is about care. And so whether it's empathy, whether it's creating the conditions, whether it's the transparency, whether it's self-deprecating, whether it's being meaningful, you know, whether it's being a human being, whether it's saying gazuntite after someone sneezes, you know, civility, where did that go? Like all of it, when you wrap it up together, is um, it's 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 a formula for success. I assure you. I love the uh, some one somebody once gave me this word said, Colin, you need to be more careful, and it was a bit of a challenge to me because I actually, do, you know, I don't particularly like careful in a in a good way behavior, and I want to take some risks. And they said, that's not what I mean. They said, you've got to be full of care. Uh, so yeah. when you're in there and they flipped it around, I love what you did with your titles. I love that is flipping around and being full of care. And it, it, what I wanted to do is link that into, there was something around that you were talking about your pathway to purpose is to start with the what, who, and how, and then get to the why. And I've always thought it was the why going the how. And it was, it was interesting for me to flip it around. So there's something in there about, Maybe some of this is just about finding the right way to your path. But tell me more about the the process you do for um, the the book about the purpose effect and the what, and the who, and how. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, with the utmost respect to to Simon Sinek, and start with why I just um, I just believe it's wrong. And the reason I believe it's wrong is that uh, we are all human beings, and there are effectively three types of purpose, but together they create a sweet spot both for you and the organization so you know um we we start with ourselves like why do we get up what interests us what what are we about uh you know that's the what question like what are our our likes our dislikes um you know who do we want to be uh who do we want to be when we grow up who do we want to be that day um who who do we want to connect with like what's you know what's our network kind of say and then the how question is 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 really about you know existential type questions like how do I want to be known when I enter a room? How do I want to be known when I leave a room? Uh, how do I want my legacy be known in this role? Uh, how do I want to be known as a parent? You know, is my 
is my firstborn of three, Claire, going to be really excited when she's 40 that, you know, her old man spent time with her and like a lot more time with her. And just, it was a dad daughter trip, you know, and anyway, like that's the what, who, how. And so when you're doing that, I don't think it's ending either. I think that's, it's a, you know, first nations in Canada have this uh, adage that uh, we're all on a journey to the waterfall. Uh, which is another way to say, you know, there's the, an afterlife, but there's death too, right? And so the path meanders. So well, how are you every week, every month, every day asking the questions, well, what am I about? Uh, who who am I and who do I want to be? And then how do I want to be known, essentially? Like those are key questions, which then help formulate effectively your sense of personal purpose. So as opposed to saying, you know, starting with why, why am I here? I, I just, I don't. I don't think that's enough and neither is it for the organization. So the, again, quickly, the three types of purpose for me, at least you've got that personal purpose, always asking those questions. And I was asking those questions, whether or not I should leave TELUS. And I was like, yep, it's time to leave. And it wasn't that I, I had um, a lack of purpose in my role, which is number two, by the way. Uh, and it wasn't because I felt that felt sorry that TELUS didn't have a sense of organizational purpose, which is the third type of purpose. I was at a point where my personal purpose needed to grow more and I wasn't able to do it in my role at work or in the organization, despite the fact that I loved my role and I love my organization. Now, play it back a little bit here. What if, you know, you have found your sense of personal purpose and you're like, yeah, but your organization sucks and it's like power tripping or it, um, you know, it has just the quest for EBITDA and profitability and, you know, uh, stock uh, price surges and so forth. Is that, is that going to, you know, tickle your fancy as we say sometimes? I don't know. It's up to you. What about your role? You know, if you, do you feel value in that role? Uh, do you feel that your boss is valuing you? Are you thus valuable? Are you able to create? And again, I think, you know, we often think and separate, a sense of personal purpose from the the place in which we work on average, let's say 40 hours a week. I kind of disagree more. And, and again, if you're thinking like a leader now, and shouldn't you be invested in the personal and role purpose of the people who are employed by you? God, I hope so. So it's a labyrinth, but I think it's solvable. Yeah, it's, it's the essence of servant leadership in some ways. And I think people, you know, when you look at it, what's your purpose? A leader needs followers, a follower needs leaders. But where do you start? Um, and how do you how do you bring that around? And I think there's there's not enough of that connection in there. I was I was loved a a, a PC. So the unobstructed flow of corporate commonality. Yeah, if I'm quoting right, really rhymes. Is, off is that the what you, there. It really really it does it does it was it was in there. And I was like, okay, I've got to listen to this two or three times, but. But the more I think about it, I think that's what you're talking about here, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I mean, if if an organization has crafted a purpose that is full of good deeds, so, you know, it's ultimately um, delivering um, goodness and, and like great customer expectation, it's engaging its employees, it acts ethical, right? It, it serves all stakeholders, not just shareholders, when, when there's good deeds uh, affected by the organization, 
I believe and have seen this, whether it's Salesforce, Unilever are really good, big examples, right? Microsoft under Satya Nadella, compare, you know, Microsoft under the previous CEO, Balmer, and what they've done. Like, again, there's a big celebrity, you know, case studies, if you will. But I am uh, way more interested in the less, you know, NASDAQ and, and um, you know, uh, the, the top 100 or 1,000 companies as I am the one layer below. And that's where millions of people work. You know, 98% of Brits, 97% of, um, or 97% of Brits, 98% of uh, Canadians work in an organization that has 5,000 or less people in it. So there's so much opportunity for leaders everywhere to, to take a hold of their purpose, the org, but also to help, you know, create that unobstructed flow of corporate commonality. So two final questions for you, hopefully quickly, quick ones for you. If you had to pick, oh, well, actually, two parts to this one. Which is your favorite book and why of the ones you've written? And which is your least favorite and why? Ooh. Oh, well, those are great questions. Uh, I'm guided by uh, an answer that was always given by um, a musician in Canada, um, Gord Downey who led a band called The Tragically Hip, who opened up for uh, Rush several times, incidentally. Yeah, read the name, and, yeah. And uh, Gordowney passed of uh, brain cancer uh, four years ago this fall. But whenever, and they, I think it was 13 studio albums. I mean, they're just a great, great band. Um, Rush is my number two, so hopefully you'll have me back one day, nonetheless. But Gord's answer is the answer I'll give. When, when people ask him that question, he would say, whatever we're writing next. And so my favorite book right now is getting into the depths of agency and the book title would be called the age of agency. Uh, but it's just so much fun digging into Sartre and Kierkegaard and Maya Angelou and piecing together lots of um, research and, and other authors and trying to figure out and make sense of how the pandemic may have given birth to agency, but I believe we've resurrected it. Um, so anyway, whatever I'm writing next, Colin. And then the, the one that I, I least like is because of the arduous process in which I had to go about writing it. And that's the purpose effect. And here's why. Um, the purpose effect was written twice. Um, it was a 70,000 word book that was about to go to print. Uh, actually, it's about to go to ARCs, which is a fancy word for advanced reader copies that go out to press and, you know, advanced readers, etc. So it's it's ready to publish, you know, about six months later. I sent it off to a friend of mine who used to be the former dean of business at the Rotman School of Business in Toronto, University of Toronto, Roger Martin. And Roger reads the manuscript, phones me up the next day and says, this is shite. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> He's like, this is terrible. Here's the things you're missing. Uh, meet me in San Francisco. We'll spend a couple of days uh, dissecting it and getting you back on track. Tell your publisher to stop the press. And I was, uh, Colin, I was gutted. Uh, but, you know, thankfully, you've got someone in your corner that's going to save your ass. So then a, it took me a year to rewrite it. Stop literally. Call the publisher. Stop the press. And I think uh, Roger in undoubtedly, and I'm indebted to his uh, help for saving, you know, the wrong manuscript getting out there. 
I love it. Well, that actually probably answers my next question, which is what's your biggest screw up? So it could be that one in terms of the first manuscript, but you know, that's, um, but I, I had Milda Zinkas to thank for mine. So she read mine first when she said, what do you want me to say? I'm not sure what you've written here. That was my first draft. And I went, okay, that's, I was just like, okay, I'll go back and rewrite it. <laughs> subtle, subtle, but you know, succinct. You know? <laughs> she was saying the same thing as Roger was saying, but yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, uh, I'm pretty sure Roger had more scotch than he needed that night to get through the original manuscript. So uh, anyway, there you go. Dan, I hope this is one of many times for you to come on. I've loved it. And we haven't really done justice to the depth of your work in here, but I, hopefully that's given the listeners a chance to, to have a skim through what you, you do. If people want to get hear more about you, where do they go to? Uh, well, as I say to my children, uh, just dial 911 because uh, that's the best help I've got for you. <laughs> or uh, probably just my name, danpontifrac.com is the easiest, yeah. Yeah, good. Make another a look in there. And thank you. Appreciate it. And our common friend Leanne was right. It was worth us getting together. That was a brilliant episode. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Colin. And let's do it again, please. Absolutely. If you if we can get Rush up to top band first, then we'll do that. But maybe <laughs> not. We'll see. Deal. <laughs> thank you, Dan. Cheers. Ciao. Well, that was a great conversation with Dan. I do like talking with fellow authors about their thinking and their work and how they crafted, and particularly the story about the Flat Army and how he worked that concept up. And there's there's a principle in here about the deep work that we do as as leaders, as coaches, to, to really start to think about how we shape the new world for leaders and how we shape their thinking, whether it's as a chief learning officer, coach, or leadership consultant. So it's amazing to, to connect with Dan. I'm sure as we were joking there, there'll be other guest appearances by Dan on this podcast as we take it further and forward. Thank you for listening. Look forward to welcoming you on another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast very shortly. <laughs>